Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's Podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. One of Jesus' most famous sayings is that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And it's a proverb that's kind of borne itself out over um, many years for many people. Uh, I think, for example, of Julius Caesar, right? The, the warrior, the politician, the general who became emperor of the Roman Empire, who died uh, by uh, a knife in the back from two of his fellow politicians. I think of Maximilien Robespierre, right? One of the architects of the French Revolution. Not such a great guy. Um, and he passed laws during uh, his tenure as a leader of the French Revolution, which greatly expanded the number of um, political executions that could happen by guillotine, um, only to later be overthrown and have to face the guillotine himself as a consequence of his own loss. I think of Tupac, the rapper, and Biggie, two early rappers who embodied this sort of gangster rap lifestyle both of whom were killed in drive-by shootings. In our modern time, it might be suggested by those outside of the church that these deaths were an act of karma, people getting cosmic just desserts for how they live their life. In our reading today, Jacob, the cheater, the deceiver, the supplanter, is going to have his own brush with what appears to be something like karmic intervention. Today we're going to see the deceiver get deceived. For the first time in his life, Jacob will be on the opposite side of a scheme. And it's a scheme that is going to tear apart the goodwill and the trust and the fellowship of his family for years and generations to come. And I want to go through this passage with the idea of karma in mind. Because on the one hand, Jacob does get a taste of his own poison. But on the other hand... I want us to be very careful about judging Jacob too swiftly because karma may feel good when it happens to other people, but I want us to consider whether we actually want the heavens to act with karma in our own lives before we start applying it to the lives of others. So let's talk about the scheme that traps Jacob today. I want to talk about that. Excuse me. I'll talk about that first. Then I'm going to talk about the pros and cons of karma. And, and why we may want to reconsider that as a system of heavenly justice. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. So first is the scheme. What is the scheme? Well, the scheme involves Jacob's wife-to-be. Jacob has arrived in Haran after his functional exile from his own family. He's stolen his brother's birthright. He's stolen his brother's uh, blessing from his father. And now his life is in peril because his big brother wants to to end the little brother's life out of result. So they, they say, Jacob, go find a wife. Go 600 miles away and find a wife. And they send him north to modern-day Turkey to the city of Haran. And Jacob, while he is traveling there, meets a pretty young thing named Rachel, who is a shepherdess. And um, he's fallen in love. In fact, the text says that he's so in love with this woman that he, he, he commits an act of superhero strength. He takes a stone and rolls it away off the top of a well so that Rachel's sheep can get water. 
And so he goes to, to Rachel's father and says, look, I want to marry this woman. Uh, and Rachel's father says, okay, sure. Um, let's, you don't have any money, though, so how are we going to do this dowry thing? And they work out a deal. Rachel's father says, work for me for seven years. Give me the labor, and I'll give you food and board and all that, but you work for me for seven years, and then I will give you my daughter's hand in marriage. So our reading picks up seven years later, which seemed like a day to Jacob. Uh, it's now time for the wedding to take place. But this presents a problem for Rachel's father, because Rachel um, is the pretty young sister. She's not the firstborn one, however. Her older sister, Leah, well, she doesn't have any suitors coming for her. The text tells us it's because she has weak eyes, which is sort of a passive way of saying she's not a perfect 10, which at least, you know, compared to her younger sister anyway, um, it's a conundrum. Because in that culture, it would be inappropriate for a younger sister to be married before the older sister. So Rachel's father comes up with a scheme. The night of the wedding festivities, which would have been day one in a week-long wedding ceremony full of dancing and feasting and drinking and fun, the father switches out the daughters in Jacob's marriage bed. And so whether Jacob was a little too tipsy from the night of feasting, whether he was simply eager to, uh, come, uh, to, to, to get his marriage started, whether it was nighttime darkness, we don't necessarily know, but he didn't look before he leapt. The veiled woman in his bed was not Rachel, but Leah. So when he wakes up the next morning having consummated the marriage, it turns out he consummated his marriage um, with another woman, not the woman that he had intended. I love how our text uh, says it. The text says, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Surprise, poor Jacob. So for the first time in his life, you see Jacob has been on the receiving end of a massive, life-changing deception, one that's gonna create generations of discord and family wounds. We're gonna talk about that in weeks to come here. Not only does Rachel's father marry off the older daughter, doesn't, not only does he solve that problem, but Rachel's father also has Jacob under his thumb. He says, look, just finish off the marriage week with, with my first daughter and work for me another seven years and, and, and then we'll give you Rachel too. So it's not just that he's, he's getting the first dollar married. He gets another seven years of free labor from Jacob. He's got another guy to work for him for seven years because he knows that Jacob is in love and that Jacob will do it. And so for 14 years, this man has coaxed and connived Jacob to work for him uh, with the promise of love at the end. And it doesn't come, at least not in the timeline that Jacob was promised. So that's the scheme. That's the scheme. That is Jacob being the one who deceives his own family, getting deceived in an equally as life-changing and an equally major way. So I want to shift gears, near, get, shift gears here and talk some more about karma. Because if you're like me, there's a temptation to look at the story and think to yourself, aha, Jacob got what he was coming, was coming to him. Right? That he can't get away with that. You can't uh, be a cheater, not expected to get cheated sometime in your life here. That karma makes sense. I'm glad that Jacob got what was coming to him. Right? Um, and if you know what karma is, just to go into a little bit of a, uh, some context here, the idea is originally of Hindu origin. It's a quote from one of their sacred texts called the Mahabharata, which I had to practice a lot before saying out loud, um, the Mahabharata. And uh, it's this old Hindu sacred text. 
And here's an example of, of karma as defined in this text. As a man himself sows, so he himself reaps. No man inherits the good or evil act of another man. The fruit is of the same quality as the action. So the idea behind in this Hindu idea is that in the great life cycle of reincarnation, right, that after you die, you're reborn on earth in some other form. Um, the idea in Hinduism is that your life's success, um, that your future life's success and your next life, um, it depends on your actions and your current life. And if your current life situation is not so great, it's payment for what you did in a past life. And this idea isn't unique to Hinduism, right? This is something you can find in Buddhism too. And if you encounter any Wiccans on your travels, um, they may tell you about something similar called the rule of three. That in the Wiccan uh, world states that when Wiccans use their magical witchcraft powers on people, that whatever energy they use on others will come back to them threefold. So that's why Wiccans don't come up to people and start hexing them and cursing them all the time because that negative energy will be returned to them three times. They're anxious it's going to kind of bounce back. Um, and this idea is not just in sort of religion or pseudo-religious circles either. Um, it's the idea behind the, the famous self-help book, The Secret. Anybody here heard of The Secret? Has anybody recommended The Secret uh, to you? It was really big about five, ten years ago. And um, if you work in sort of the multi-level marketing or the self-help world, this was all the rage. In fact, Oprah Winfrey was like, this is the book I would have written if I were going to write a book. And the book suggests that like attracts like, that your positive thoughts also bring about positive actions that will bring attra and attract positive outcomes in your life, and that your negative thoughts and actions are going to attract negative outcomes in your life. Sort of Norman Vincent Peale, but, but re-upped. And so the secret, right, is, is the same thing as karma. You, what you put out into the world will come back to you. So put out good things in the world and it will come back to you. In our own sort of colloquial modern context, we think of karma as simple shorthand for getting someone's just desserts, right? It's about justice in some sense, right? So when someone flies past you on the highway and cuts you off and you're thinking, what a dangerous driver, I can't believe it. They should get pulled over. And five minutes down the road, you see the cop has pulled this person over and the lights are flashing. They're sitting on the side of the road getting a speeding ticket. You're like, ah, karma got him, right? Kind of feels a little good. You're like, justice actually happens. Um, I think of uh, maybe you've got a bully from your high school or middle school days and you're flicking through Facebook and it comes up and you, uh, that, you know, this person is friends with all your friends and you should be friends with your old high school bully on Facebook and you're thinking, no, Facebook, you're clearly broken. This person is terrible, but you click and see how your bully's doing this, these days and from a quick scan of their Facebook profile, you can see your high school bully is not doing so well. You know, life has not been kind to them. And you sit there and you're like, you know, my life may not be perfect, but I got a lot better than my high school bully. Yes, karma got him. You know? Or maybe, you know, something, you had this, this terrible work environment, this place that you used to work that was terrible, a restaurant perhaps, or a business, and you used to work there, and the managers were terrible, and your coworkers were terrible, and the customers were terrible, and this whole thing was just absolutely terrible, and you were working there, and you quit um, in a rage because it was such a terrible place to work, and a couple years later, you find that the business is shut down. You think, yeah, that's about right. That's good karma. Karma, right? Um, that, that in our own modern context, we like to see when other people get justice. We like to see these things come down on other people because we have a sense of justice and fairness, and we want to see that come forward, and sometimes we chalk it up to karma, that when good things go out there, good things come back. When bad things go out, bad things respond.
And so when Jacob is deceived in this way like he is in our reading today, it derails his life significantly, just like he derailed Esau's life, just like he deceived his father's plans. We may be tempted to think that Jacob is getting his own dose of karma. But as satisfying as karma feels, and it's just as it can feel to experience, there are two major problems with karma that I want to share with you this morning. The first problem is that karma does not actually work if you look hard enough in the world. If you're looking for evidence for justice and karma at work, um, you're going to find some very glaring examples of where it doesn't work. And the second problem with karma is that when you really think about it, you would prefer another moral ethic besides karma if you were given the choice. And I want to explain these two issues with karma very briefly before pitching to you something better than karma. I want to, I want to give you the idea for something better than karma this morning. Um, a spiritual answer that can be found uh, to our ethical problem in Genesis. So first I want to say that the problem with karma is that it does not operate in accordance um, with how we see things in the world. That if karma were true, and that if karma existed as a spiritual force in the universe, you would see virtuous people um, kind of clumped together and good people clumped together succeeding in areas of life. You would see sort of this, this social hierarchy where the good people were at the top and they were winning, and then people who lacked virtue and ethics would be at the bottom and they would be losing in life, however you want to define that. And I don't think we see that hierarchy playing itself out. You very likely know someone who is humble and virtuous, good people as we would say, but life circumstances have kind of thrown them under the bus. A birth defect, an unexpected illness, a car accident. These life tragedies do not uh, discriminate based on, our, based on our good or our bad deeds. If we are to believe that the universe is governed by karma, how do we make space in there for things like flash floods or a cancer diagnosis? Suffering, while it does seem to hit the human race at individual levels of severity, um, it does not discriminate based on virtue. So that's the first thing um, that I want to tell you about karma. Maybe you know someone who is reprehensible in all of their actions, but all, by all appearances, they have a life of karmic success. Maybe there's this cutthroat business person in your orbit, a celebrity who you know about their private indiscretions and you're waiting for them to be canceled uh, as they do these days. Maybe this even applies to clergy too. Maybe you know of an ordained minister somewhere with a secret life that's experiencing what looks like success in their ministry, but they really shouldn't be experiencing that success if God was a God of karma. Uh, this is one thing that gets addressed in the book of Job, which is the Bible's great anti-karma text. Um, a lot of bad things happen to Job, and all three of Job's friends, as they sit around him, uh, are trying to explain to him why these bad things are happening to you. They say, Job, clearly you have done something wrong. God is just, and so if all of these terrible things have happened to you, then you clearly have some sort of ethical responsibility that's played a part in it. And so, Job, the thing that's going to get you out of your suffering is for you to apologize to God for something that you have done wrong. They might have well said, Job, this is, this is negative karma. That's what you're experiencing. Something's gone wrong. Maybe it was your past life. Maybe it's what you're doing now, Job. But this is negative karma that you're experiencing. And when God shows up at the end of the book of Job, he tells these three friends um, that my anger burns against you. God's anger burns against these three friends. He commands them. He says, first off, go apologize to Job and ask him to pray for you. And also make sacrifices to me, your God, um, because you've got me wrong. 
of the things that you're talking about, about suffering and how it's deserved, that's wrong. It's heresy to think that I, the God of the universe, would do that to someone like Job. Good things happen to bad people, and bad things happen to good people. And we cannot simply explain that away by saying it's karma. The universe itself is evidence that karma is not a control. The second major problem with karma is that if you are thoughtful and appropriately self-reflective in your person, you don't want karma to govern your universe. And here's what I mean, right? In the Buddhist tradition, for karma to kind of kick in and work, your, um, your, your activities are judged on the Eightfold Path. It's called the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is this belief that every action we take as humans involves at least eight different components which need to be done correctly. So in the Buddhist tradition, right, uh, Hinduism has karma, so does Buddhism. In the Buddhist tradition, you have to have the, the, the Eightfold Path, which means you have to have the right view, the right mind, the right speech, the right conduct, the right livelihood, the right effort, the right mind, and the right uh, reflections on those actions. That's what you have to have, says Buddhists um, in their Eightfold Path. And I don't know about you, but when I analyze my own actions along those eight different categories, I don't measure up. I might have the right speech, but I may not have the right mindset of the speech. I might have the right view, but I may not have the right action based on that view. And so the idea of karma, it makes us think we can live a perfect life. Um, but if we're going to be honest this morning and let our guards down, nobody in this room is living a life defined by perfect view, perfect resolve, or speech, or conduct, or effort, or mind, or reflection, or livelihood. Any of those eightfold path items. Um, and, and someone who's really reflected on this and who offers a better way for us is um, the front man of U2. I've used U2 before in sermon. I don't have very many U2 illustrations left, but this is one of the best ones. Um, and I want to talk to you about the rock star at the head of that uh, band, Bono. I'll talk to you about Bono. Um, back in 2005, Bono gave a massive book-length interview with a guy named Mishka Asayas. And you can go get the book right now. It's sort of a biography, tell-all, back-and-forth interview. This massive interview um, at one point takes a turn where the interviewer starts to ask Bono about his spirituality. They start talking about Bono's faith and uh, his sincere Christian faith. And uh, Bono addresses this question of, of karma directly. The interviewer says, as I told you, I think I'm beginning to understand religion because I started acting and thinking like a father. What do you make of that? And Bono answers, yes, I think that's normal. It's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees, says Bono, is the difference between grace and karma. The interviewer says, I haven't heard you talk about that before. And Bono says, I really believed that we've moved out of the realm of karma into the realm of grace. The interviewer says, well, that doesn't make it any clearer for me. And Bono goes on. He says, you see, at the center of all religious life is this idea of, of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal and opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe, and I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that as you reap, so you will sow stuff. Grace defies 
reason, and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions. I'll read that again. Bono says, love interrupts the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff, says Bono. And the interviewer says, of course, no, I'd be interested to hear that. (laughs) And Bono says, that's between me and God. But I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep excrement. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins under the cross because I know who I am, and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. And the interviewer says, the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. I wish I could believe in that. And Bono says, but I love the idea of a sacrificial lamb. I love the idea that God says, look, you Cretans, there are certain results to the way that we are, to selfishness, and there's mortality as a very part of your sinful nature. And let's face it, you're not living a very good life, are you? There are consequences to actions. But the point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that what we put out did not come back to us and that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death. That's the point. It should keep us humble. It's not our own good works that get us through the gates of heaven. I mean, that's powerful stuff from Bono. Because Bono is hoping for something other than karma. Bono is holding out for grace. Because he knows his own spirit. He knows the things that he has done. And he knows that karma is the way of the world. If that's the case, he has no hope. Here who has ears, let him hear. So I say... Our man Jacob today gets a taste of his own medicine, and it looks like karma to us. But Jesus gives us with something that is greater than karma. The love of Jesus interrupts. It breaks down the karma of the world. It breaks down the cause and effect of our actions. And what we'll soon find find is that Jacob, the deceiver, will not be the deceiver for all the rest of his days. Love will soon interrupt Jacob's life too just like it's interrupted our lives. Jesus Christ, friends, the Christian faith, friends, it is the end of karma. He gives grace to people who do not deserve it. He ends the cycle of payback and paying off debts. And for the deceivers and the cheaters and the schemers of the world, people just like you and me, that is indeed good news. In Jesus' name, amen. Ligonier, Pennsylvania.